Father, we count it a joy that you would include us in the caregiving of our fellow temple stones and bricks that are hurting and have been broken. And Lord, we come together today just like we did last week and every day this week, helpless, insufficient on our own, but somehow, Lord, your, your precious Holy Spirit anoints our skin, our eyes, our smile, our touch, uh, even simple words, uh, songs, and of course the scripture, and the body of Christ. So you anoint us, and you saturate us, and so we're able to help in the smallest way move to the next hour and to the next sunrise and to the next day. So we lift up Mark and Kathy to you, all the children, all the family, and we ask that wherever they are right now, that the miracle, that the miracle of God, the miracle of Emmanuel, God with us, would happen in their life. Just as Jesus was born in that manger, might the hope of Jesus be born in their living room. Might the hope of Jesus be born in their kitchen and in their conversation and their weeping. We love them. We care for them. And Lord, we do pray for a miracle because apart from the supernatural touch of the Lord, uh, none of us have any ability to hope. You have to create faith. And what we need more than anything else, Lord, answers are insufficient. They're helpful. But what we need is the tender finger of Jesus to wipe the tears off of our cheeks, to hold our hand, and to carry us, and then to breathe peace into our life, into our minds, our hearts. So do that. Breathe peace, O Holy Spirit. Breathe on this church, on this family. Breathe, O Holy Spirit, on the city, on Dorman, and all friends. Breathe, O oh God. Breathe, O oh Holy Spirit. Supernatural peace that cannot be explained other than mercy and power. Now, Lord, for the suffering that exists all around the world that we're reminded of more than ever, we pray for our fellow living stones that are being built up in the temple around the world that are grieving today as well. We love them. Don't know them, but we love them. For the persecuted, the poor, the impoverished, and those who have lost everything this week for Christ. We thank you for the promise of heaven. We thank you, Lord, that all things are, are being perfectly guided by your will, which will not allow anything, but does allow everything that is good, not allow anything that is not planned. Oh, God, thank you that you would squeeze into this building and love us. We welcome you on our seats and in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Richard. Our text this morning is 1 Peter 3, 9 to 17. So if you have your Bibles or you want to pull out your phone, 1 Peter 3, 9 to 17. I've titled my sermon, Suffering for Righteousness' Sake, Better to Suffer for Doing Good. I got these two phrases from our text this morning. 1 Peter 3, 14 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
And then 317 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is my primary biblical truth that I want to convey this morning. We've all come to a point in our lives where when we're faced with the decision to do the right thing and suffer for it, or do the wrong thing and avoid the suffering. So is it better to allow the wrong to continue, thereby avoiding the suffering, or is it better to do the right thing and suffer for it? Peter's answer is, it's always better to suffer for doing good. Put that on repeat in your brains. It's always better to suffer for doing good. My last sermon in 1 Peter was 1 Peter 3, 8. We just dealt with one verse, and Peter there unpacked sort of the five marks of a healthy Christian community. Now he sort of turns to outside persecution. So 1 Peter 3, 8, this is how you act in the church, and now this is how you act when you receive persecution from outside the church. And this is how he starts. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So think of this as Peter's thesis statement over the next several verses that he's going to unpack for us. This is his thesis. Rather than repaying evil for evil, on the contrary, repay with a blessing. Okay, this is his thesis statement. And now he's going to go on for the next several verses and sort of give arguments or reasons why we as believers should live this way. In fact, he gives three reasons. Two of them are in our text this morning. So suffering for righteousness sake. Number one, Peter says, you were called to this. Like you were saved. One of the reasons you were saved is to have this kind of radical love. When someone insults you, you don't insult back. You return a blessing. This is one of the reasons why you were called. And in fact, he goes to the Old Testament to prove this, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. Number two... He says, live this way, return a blessing when you're insulted, because God is sovereign over our suffering. God is sovereign over our suffering. Verse 13 of that section says, now, or some translations say, and, as if Peter's saying, okay, this is my second point. Not only were you made for this, but God is sovereign over your suffering. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good works? And then he's even more explicit in the verse I already read, for it is better for you to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. And then his third point, which we won't get to today, is Christ suffered this way in verses 18 to 22. This is how our captain suffered. He didn't insult when he was insulted. He didn't, he didn't return evil for evil. He went all the way to the cross. And so I'm going to save that all for its own message. In fact, uh, Martin Luther said that that paragraph in the New Testament is the most confusing paragraph in all of the New Testament. So I'm going to save that. It needs to be a standalone message for us to unpack that, uh, Lord willing, when we get there. So, thesis statement. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. That's just insult for insult, but on the contrary, bless. Insult to evil. So you see the spectrum of suffering that's out there for us. So Peter's covering the whole gamut of suffering. 
as small as somebody calling you a name at work, and as big as physical persecution, possibly even death for doing what is right. It can be in the form of defamation of character, verbal abuse, public shaming, discrediting, physical abuse, all the way to suffering your death like our Savior did, from insult to evil. So something I want you to notice, though, is that Peter's exhortation here is not one of just simply non-retaliation, right? As difficult as that is, when someone hurts you, when someone insults you, the Christian response is not simply non-retaliation. Look what Peter says. On the contrary, bless. All right? The Christian response to insults hurled at them is not simply non-retaliation. Right? We can sort of fathom this, like, I'm going to grit my teeth, I'm going to bite my tongue, I'm not going to say that thing that that per- person deserves to hear from me right now. We, maybe we can get there. But it's truly supernatural when someone does that to you and then you return some sort of blessing. You return some sort of, of love to them. This is wrought from the Spirit. But this is what Peter is calling us to. As difficult as this sounds... As unnatural as this sounds, this is what Peter is calling us to, to return a blessing for insult. And Peter's simply uh, telling us what he learned from Christ. This is not new teaching in the New Testament. This is not, not something new to Peter. Remember, Jesus told us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't think Jesus meant that we're supposed to have some sort of emotional affection for our enemies. What he meant was, is that we should be concerned for their souls. And that we should pray for them. And I think Peter helps us even a little bit further with this on how to act towards our enemies. He's basically saying, when you have the opportunity to get that revenge on that person that deserves it, you don't take that opportunity. And in fact, we respond with blessing and love. This is how you love your enemies. Loving your enemies means to bless them when they are hostile towards you. So let's think about that a little bit deeper. View the hostility of your enemies towards you as an opportunity to love them. This is, should be like God, like shaking us. All right, here's that insult coming at you, and you all, everything in you wants to insult back, and the spirit within you says, love this person. This is how we love. As children of God, we have the power within us to do this. We have the Spirit of God in us. Human tendency and cultural expectations for us to retaliate will not go unnoticed by a watching world. You will be noticed for responding to insult and evil this way. They're going to ask, like, why? Why are you acting this way? We're going to get to this in just a little bit in more detail. But for now, I want you to think about this question. Do you have enough confidence in the sovereignty of God and your identity in Christ to forego defending your reputation? That's basically what Peter's pointing us to in suffering. When people hurl an insult at you. Your identity, you're made for this, and the sovereignty of God. Do you have enough confidence in that to love in this radical way? Because this is not natural to us. 
The good news is, as difficult as it sounds, in Christ we have this ability, and this is Peter's first point that I alluded to already. You were called to this. You were saved for this reason. And that's what he says in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless. Why? For to this you have been called. You think about all the reasons that God saved you, all the reasons that God pulled you out of that former life. One of those reasons is that you would return love for evil. That you would return a blessing for an insult. Now, I don't want you to get caught up on this last phrase here, that you may obtain a blessing. So you might read that and say, well, if I just return a blessing when somebody insults me, then God's going to guarantee his favor on me. Or even more terribly, if I act this way, then God's going to let me into heaven. That's not what Peter's teaching us here. This word that's translated obtain in my version, my translation, ESV, is not a great translation. Most of the translations translate that word inherit. In fact, that's translated in the ESV and other places as inherit. So the way you read this verse is, don't repay evil for evil, for this you were called that you may inherit a blessing. And we all know that inheritances are not earned. They are freely given to who? The heirs. Freely given to the heirs of the kingdom. Peter says that those who share in the inheritance of Christ are called to this type of lifestyle. So this, this is how the, the Bible motivates us to good works. The Bible doesn't say, do good works and God will let you into heaven. Do these things and you'll find favor with God. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's a false teaching. The way the Bible motivates us to good works is by saying, act like who you are. This is how the children of God act. This is how the righteous act. You are a child of God. You've been born into his kingdom, the new birth. And this is what the children of God look like. The scripture doesn't say that believers earn a blessing. It says that they inherit a blessing. See, if Peter were saying that the way we get eternal life is by blessing those who insult us, it would be a complete and total contradiction of his own teaching in this, own, in this very letter. Look what, remember what he told us back in chapter 1? According to God's great mercy, this is how you were saved. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance. The inheritance Peter is talking about in chapter 3 that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, secured in heaven for you, not based on your works, based on the great mercy of our Father in heaven. This is how God brings us into his family, not by returning a blessing for insult. In chapter 3, chapter three verse 9, Peter's simply saying, challenging us to live like who we are. God's only begotten Son lived this way. This is in our DNA, and Peter's motivating us to respond and to love in this radical way, the same way Jesus loved. So to prove his point, Peter takes us to the Old Testament. Very next verse, 1 Peter 3.10, starts out with this word for, and then he has a quotation here you'll see in your Bibles. So I love fours in the Bible if you don't already know that, like, fours and so that's and order that's and two and so 
these words create logic in the Bible. The Bible is logical. And these words tie phrases and arguments to prove a true point. And that's what Peter's doing here. He's saying, live this way because you were made to this, live this way. You were called to live this way. And let me show you how the Old Testament told us to do that. He says four, and he quotes Psalm 34 here. Psalm 34 starts out, uh, verse 12, whoever de desires to love life and see good days. Peter is saying that God has been telling us what the children of God looked like for hundreds of years since the Old Testament. So just put, just replace this phrase here with believer, children of God, because we are the ones who desire to love life and see good days. That's us. And he's going to tell us what we look like. Let him keep his tongue from evil. Exactly what Peter told us. Don't return insult for insult and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil. Don't return evil for evil. Let him seek peace and pursue it. This is sort of the active side of it. This is not just the non-retaliation. Now we're seeking peace. Now we're giving a blessing. So all that Peter do, is doing here is saying, this is what the children of God look like, and God has been saying this for hundreds and thousands of years now. The beautiful attributes of the children of God are that they keep their tongues from evil, their lips from speaking deceit, they turn away from evil, and they seek peace and pursue it. So logic goes, if these attributes are true of the children of God, and I'm a child of God, why would I want to act otherwise? Why would I act like someone who I'm not? It doesn't make sense for us to be a child of God and live contrary to the characteristics of the child of God. Again, the motivation is live like who you are in Christ. All the attributes listed in Psalm 34 for the child of God are antithetical to retaliation. The child of God who lives a retaliation-type lifestyle is distorting the picture of Christ to an unbelieving world. That's the danger in retaliation, whether it's in your home, at work, in your hobbies. Retaliating, returning evil for evil, insult for insult, is putting on display a distorted picture, an inaccurate picture of the family of God. Have any of you ever been the subject of a meme before? So my kids sometimes make memes of me, and thankfully they just send them to our family text and not put them on social media. Um, it's typically an unfavorable picture of you, distorted picture with some sort of comment or pissy phrase. And here's one that the kids make and, and share. And I think it's a distorted picture of me. I'm not sure... But this is what we do to the picture of God. We put an inaccurate, distorted picture of Christ, much like my distorted face here, and we say, this is what the family of God looks like. It's not true. I'll take that down so I don't lose y'all. <laughs> this is what we're doing to the picture of Christ when we live a retaliation-type lifestyle. We're showing the world an inaccurate picture of Christ, and it's devastating. It's saddening for the world to see us acting this way, and it's not who we are, and it's not who Christ called us to be. The psalm continues. 
like I went the wrong way. Four. So here's another four. It's sort of logic within logic here. So the Old Testament says, let the children of God live this way. Why? For or because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Because of Christ, child of God, believer, you have God's, God's eyes and ears. Furthermore, it says that God's face is against those who do evil. So the logic works again. It makes no sense then for the believer, the righteous, to retaliate with evil. How can those who have the eyes and ears of God also turn his face away because we're acting with evil? Right? Peter's saying this just does not make sense for the believer to live this way. It's opposite of who we are. So Peter applies the promises that David received in Psalm 34 during his sojourning among the Philistines to the contemporary Christian sojourning in today's world. He's given us the same promises. And that psalm is a psalm of deliverance. A psalm that encourages us in our suffering as we look to our future deliverance. So the sort of upshot of, of Peter's teaching here is that we don't need to deliver ourselves from insults because we're looking to future deliverance, the future promise of God for deliverance. And we don't need to deliver ourselves from these insults. We don't need to deliver ourselves from this evil. We don't need to return evil for evil, insult for insult, because we're looking to our future deliverance in Christ. That's what Peter is teaching us here. We can live this way because we have hope in the Lord's future deliverance from our suffering. You can live this way because you have the Father's attentive gaze. That's what Peter's quote in Psalm 34 is. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Child of God, the eyes of the Lord are on you. This is our promise. This is the promise to the heirs of the kingdom of God. You can endure suffering. You can endure insults and evil without retaliation because you have the loving gaze of your father. He sees you. He hears your cry. And he's listening to your prayer. This is the blessing for those that are inheriting the kingdom of God. So Peter says, live this way because in Christ you are righteous, and this is how the righteous live. Next, Peter says that you live this way because God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over suffering. Ultimately, there's nothing to fear because you are God's and God is still in control. This is why we can live this way. This is why we can turn love for hate. Peter starts out his sovereignty of God argument with a rhetorical question. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if, there is, or if you are zealous for what is good? This comes on the heels of Peter quoting Psalm 34, right? Where he says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. If this is true, if God, God's eyes are on you, then the natural question is, who is there to harm you? 
It echoes Paul's teaching in Romans 8 when he said, if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? And so Peter says this in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. This last phrase here on the screen, you will be blessed. In the original Greek, there's no verb here. There's no will be in the Greek. So it reads in the Greek, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed ones, Peter is reminding us that we are God's blessed ones. The point here is that there's a tendency to believe that when we suffer that God's favor has been removed from us. And Peter says that's simply not true. That's a lie of the enemy. The enemy wants you to think that that God has abandoned you, but Scripture testifies otherwise. Scripture says that the suffering ones in Christ are also the blessed ones in Christ. But even if you should suffer for doing good, blessed ones, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed ones, it doesn't feel like it's true. In Christ, though, no matter the circumstances, you are still known as the blessed ones of God. When everything in you says the face of God is against you, hear Scripture saying that you are God's blessed ones. Biblically speaking, suffering is not the opposite of blessing. As much as the world and Satan wants you to think that, suffering is not the opposite of blessing. So as we contemplate Possible suffering for righteousness' sake, our tendency is to fear, right? To sort of fear the ones that are threatening the suffering, that are threatening the persecution. Fear that they're not, that, that you look stupid in front of them because they called you a name and you're loving them back. We have this fear that wells up inside of us, and Peter has a remedy for our fear. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Here's another transition word to help us. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. How do you conquer the fear of man? How do you conquer fear of persecution? Peter says, do its opposite. What is its opposite? In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The alternative to fear is to honor Christ. Turn your attention to Christ. This is our only remedy of fear. It's found nowhere else. Fear is the greatest threat to acting righteous in the face of persecution. The honoring of Christ as Lord in our hearts is the weapon we use to defeat this threat. This is key. This is key key for us. When we honor Christ as holy... In our hearts, we're setting him apart, right? So you might be thinking, what, what does it mean to honor Christ as holy in your, in your heart? It's setting him apart above all else in your life. He's the supreme treasure of your life. He's the supreme treasure of all eternity. He's the supreme value in your life, and you view him this way. 
The honoring of Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts is having a deep-seated inward confidence that in our suffering, Christ still reigns and God is in control. You value Christ over safety. You value Christ over comfort. You value Christ over financial security. You value Christ over life itself. This is how you defeat the fear of man. This is how you defeat fear in the face of persecution and suffering. Christ is the supreme value of your life. Is he the supreme treasure in your life? When we do this, honor Christ as holy in our hearts, we have this fear shift, right? That's what Peter's trying to get out of us here. Don't fear them. Don't be troubled. Do this instead. A fear shift. Having correctly placed fear is how we honor Christ as holy in our hearts. Commentators are almost certain that Peter's quoting Isaiah 8.13 when he said this. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, Christ. Let him be your fear Let him be your dread. There is a fundamental shift in our fear when we honor Christ as Lord in our hearts. Then Peter gives us another way to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. Maybe the more famous part of 1 Peter 3.15. So he says, don't fear them. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And how do you do that? Here we go. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. How do you honor Christ as holy? Fear transfer. Secondly, always be prepared to give an answer. As you exhibit this deep-seated trust in the sovereignty of Christ, you will have an opportunity to bear witness to Christ. That is for sure. This type of confidence in Christ will make unbelievers notice. That's what Peter's getting at here. So much so that they'll ask, what kind of hope do you have? How can you hope in these circumstances? Hope is a major theme of 1 Peter. Let's let's understand this. Hope governs behavior. Remember that. Hope governs governs behavior. What you put your hope in governs how you behave. If you hope in your reputation, you're going to do everything in your power to protect your reputation. If you hope in your job, you're going to do everything in your power to protect that job. If you hope in financial security, you're going to do everything in your power to make sure you retire comfortably. Hope governs behavior and these are the things that the world hopes in so when you hope in the same things that the world hopes in you're going to go unnoticed because you don't look different than they do remember peter called us strangers and aliens in the beginning of this letter like if i put an alien on stage with me today y'all wouldn't be looking at me you'd be looking at this strange thing beside me and that's what peter says we look like to the world when we have this kind of hope. We're not hoping in our reputation. 
We're not hoping in our abilities or our fame or our money like the rest of the world. And we see what we hope in when we're insulted. What are we going to do? How are you going to respond? We see what we hope in when we suffer. How are you going to respond? If you hope in the things eternal, it changes your behavior and you look different from the world and they're going to ask why. Like, why can you still have joy? How can you love that guy still when he did that to you? Now we're starting to see a glimpse into why Peter said that we're called to this type of lifestyle. Peter is starting to unfold why God would call people into his family and then allow them to suffer for doing what is right. Why does he do this? The answer is because it draws people to Christ. This is why we suffer. It makes people ask why. How can you still have hope? How can you still trust God? How can you still say that God is a good God? Now you have the opportunity to bear witness to the glories of Christ. Returning blessing for insult with rock-solid confidence in Christ's sovereign control is an evangelistic proclamation to a lost and dying world. They want the hope that you have. You hardly have to say much because they just see the hope of Christ exuding from you. It's an evangelistic proclamation, one that will certainly draw people to Christ. We live so noticeably different that people are compelled to ask, why? What is this hope that you have? I'm just think through three implications of this phrase, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Implication number one, it says to be prepared. Are you prepared? Could you give a reason for the hope that is in you? I don't mean in some academic way. I don't mean, you know, find all the empirical evidence for the resurrection or give 21 reasons why God exists, although do that, it's fine. But what Peter is sort of freeing us up to do here is give a reason for the hope. You're given a reason for the hope that is in you. You're given a reason for why you look different than everybody else when things go wrong. Do you have a reason? If you're a believer, if you're a child of God, you have a reason. You may not be able to articulate it, but you have a reason. I was watching Piper, John Piper on this verse, and typical Piper says, so I went and read First Peter and found 35 reasons for the hope that is in me. <laughs> read First Peter and find one. And memorize it. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance undefiled, unfading, unperishing. It's a reason. That's why we hope. Because God in his great mercy caused us to be born again. Number two, do you have hope? Would, would anyone ever ask? Or are you hoping in the same thing as the world's hoping in and nobody's asking? Is it your parents' faith 
that you're sort of clinging to and you have no real hope inside? Is it a cultural thing where you're just going to church because this makes a more rounded person? You know, you go to school, you study, you go to work, you go to church. Is there real hope inside of you? Maybe today you'll find hope. Implication number three. Have you isolated yourself? So maybe nobody's asking because you're just always surrounding yourself with believers. And you don't look any different from them. We need to be around unbelievers for people to say, why do you have this hope? We look different from them. Why do you have this hope? You know, you saw the, the little advertisement for our learning community coming up. You, don't want to, you want to know how to live out your Christianity at work? You know, it, it really, everybody talks about evangelism, and that's great, but as the video said, it's more than evangelism. I think it's 1 Peter 3.15. I call 1 Peter 3.15 like workplace Christianity, living with hope. Workplace Christianity is simply living and working as if you have hope, hope that surpasses all the mountains and valleys of your daily job. Whether business is good or business is bad, people can see the hope that is in you. Whether you have a good boss or you have a difficult boss, people can see the hope that is in you. Whether you get that promotion or you don't, people can see the hope that is in you. Live and work as if you have hope. You have this in you if you're a child of God. Let's live like it. So Peter wraps up his second point or argument of why we should live this way, sort of summarizing it in verse 17. We've read it already. We've got this four here. Here he's, he's summarizing all the teaching that came before in this point of God is sovereign over your suffering. And he says, why? For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Better to suffer. Better to suffer. Those three words are not, not natural. These are biblical words put together. Better to suffer. This is how it is for the believer. And then he, make, he makes it even more explicit and says, if that should be God's will. If that should be God's will. Does that bother you? Does God ordain suffering? The biblical answer is yes. As you say, I got, I got fired at work because I stood up for the truth. God, it was the right thing to do, and you, you got me fired. Now there's no income for my family. Why, God? Is this your work, God? Suffering for righteousness' sake. Jesus suffered like this. Acts 4. For truly, it's a certain, in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, God anointed him, his hand was on Christ. These people were gathered against him, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. To do what? Whatever your hand, God, and whatever your plan, God, 
had predestined to take place. God ordained Christ's suffering. God planned Christ's suffering. If God ordained the cross, he will ordain our suffering as well. And that's true. What's the purpose of it, though, Dan? I'll go to First Peter, my next sermon. For Christ, that's why we live this way, another four. Because Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous, that's Christ, for the unrighteous, that's you and me. Why? That he might bring us to God. This is why we suffer. All God-ordained suffering brings people to God. This was the purpose of Christ's suffering, and it's the purpose of our suffering. Christ suffered to bring you to God. God-ordained suffering is always redemptive in some way. Therefore, it's always better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. It's always better to suffer for doing good, because God is sovereign. Let's pray. Father, these are hard truths, difficult to understand, Lord, in our finite minds, with our sinful natures, but the secret things belong to you, Father, and we trust that. We trust all the promises that say that you are good. We trust the promise that says it is better to suffer for doing good because it's your will. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, for it is God who justifies. For we know that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Not danger or persecution or nakedness or sword. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For we are sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor powers nor principalities will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say it, God, and we will believe it. God, I pray for someone here that has no hope. That you are the source of all the hope. Would you let them see that this morning? They've been putting their hope in their jobs, in finances, in security, in comfort, in drugs, in alcohol, in their addictions. Oh, Father, would you just let them see this morning that Christ is the supreme treasure of the universe and that's who they've been looking for. And that's the hope they need. 
Lord, convert this morning and sanctify us as well. Father, those of us that are children of God find it difficult to live this way. And so we ask for your spirit to well up inside of us, Father, and help us to honor Christ as holy in our hearts so that we do not fear the persecution, we do not fear the suffering, and so that we can magnify you and make people ask, why is there hope? So would you do that in this body, across this city, and across the world? In Christ's name, amen.